The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 26, verses 1 through 6. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust, The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Christ. Try that again. Okay, that's better. Good morning, everyone. It's a great, great delight to be back. Third time I heard, and so I remember that one time was that the light went out, and so I was, there was a lamp here, and so that was unforgettable experience, number one, of speaking here. The other unforgettable experience, I was just looking at this thing, and I, I remember when I was speaking in Boston at this kind of hipster church a few years back, they had this thing up there, and I, I really did not realize it was Eucharistic Elmas, so I actually took it and drank it. <laughs> So I thought it was grape juice, and I was like, oh, shoot, it's wine. And then I, I couldn't quite put it down, so I had to play it kind of cool. So I drank the whole thing through the dregs and put it down. <laughs> then the person came in, filled it up, and took it away from me. So, um, <laughs> so uh, here we are. So uh, thank you for the reading of, of Isaiah chapter 26. And, and we as a congregation have uh, begun a new series uh, on, on Isaiah. And uh, it's a, a series called Following God. In a difficult world. Well, quite similar to a number of you, Isaiah is my favorite Old Testament book, containing such sublime expressions and profound portrayals of Yahweh as the God of Israel, as well as breathtaking and vista-opening prophecies about Israel's future revelation and the role that the messianic figure, Jesus Christ, would play in Israel's redemption and restoration. Today's text that was read is no exception. And the sermon this morning is entitled, God of the City. God of the City. Now I'd like to do a brief biblical theology of the city from the Old Testament, linking it to the New Testament as well. But before we get to fasten and tighten our intellectual and theological seatbelts, let's take a quick cultural detour and make a few observations about the city. Okay? So if someone were to ask you to identify and circle on a map of the United States, places and regions where it's more likely that it's more likely that you'll find God, where would you circle? Right? So think of a US map and you have to circle certain places where God is more present in other places. Would they be more urban? Would they be more suburban? Would they be more red states, blue states, south, north, east, west, where? I'm not trying to exacerbate the kind of polarization that exists in our culture today, but just trying to get us to think about 
our geographies of the sacred, you know, where you think is more sacred and holy and so on and so forth. Because in, among the people of Israel, they did have the theology, the geography of the holy. They, for, for example, holy of the holies was a place that not anyone could just willingly enter. It would had to be a chief priest once a year, even having uh, bells fastened in their ankle so that he could kind of, people could hear that he's moving about and so on and so forth. So we have our own kind of places and regions where you think God is more likely to be present. Um, we all have our perspectives and prejudices as to where God is more likely to dwell, and more often than not, it is a thinly veiled reflection of our own personal biases, claiming God for the municipalities and regions where we are presently sojourning. Sort of as a caricature. You know, if you ask a New York Yankees fan, is God in Boston? They'll say, no, God is not in Boston. If you ask Boston Red Sox fan, is God in New York? No, he's not in New York. And you get the picture, right? So... It often shows up as I speak with uh, parents of high school students. So, my, um, so I serve at Christ Press as a scholar in residence, and my day job is I teach at Vanderbilt um, in the Divinity School as well as in the Religious Studies and History Department. And so as I talk to parents, uh, high school parents who are thinking about sending their kids to college, especially those whose children are interested in studying up north or in bigger cities, um, and as someone who is from up north by way of Philadelphia, New York, and Boston, and then outside of London for four years and then coming to Nashville 13 years ago, I got thinking a lot about where people are thinking as uh, more likely places where God dwells or safer places for Christians to go. And as we think about these places, I mean, think about if you, many of you have children and they're thinking about going to college. What, what are some of the cities or places that you say, oh, you should go there and well, maybe you should think twice about that. I don't know if you have such reservations. I've talked to quite a number of parents like that, and I actually happen to live with one like that. My wife is uh, kind of like that. She loves the South partly because she thinks that God is more present in the South than elsewhere. And I, we have love her to death, and we have sharply, sharply divided perspectives on that. And so we uh, just have a great sparring, theological sparring partner. But let me surprise all of us here. Uh, God is no more present in rural North Dakota or in deep Mississippi than in San Francisco or Copenhagen, Denmark. We think that God is more in the safe environs or suburbs or exurbs or whatever, but such thinking goes against the theology of ubiquity or omnipresence of God. God is everywhere. You cannot localize God's presence or purposes or activity or agency. One of my favorite texts uh, that I love to teach, um, especially at, 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 at Vandy, is a, a book by Augustine of Hippo. is a fourth century North African Christian. Um, uh, he wrote this book called The City of God. It took him about 14 years to complete The City of God, and it's actually an um, occasion by the fall of Rome in 410. So um, A.D. or C.E., whatever your pleasure is. So, and and uh, Augustine completes it around 423. And the, the occasional writing of this book is this, you know, if you think about, if you thought about in the 4th century, the eternal and most powerful empire or city in the world, known world, that would be Rome or Roman Empire. And now Rome has been sacked by these barbarians from north, the Germans, the Visigoths, led by King Alaric. 
And so the Roman intelligentsia and uh, the power brokers, they have begun to criticize and lay the blame squarely at the feet of Christians, saying that it is because Rome had forsaken his own deities and embraced this God of Jesus Christ that all kinds of problems have arisen. That it actually is a weak religion. It does not talk about power and pomp and so on. And it actually talks about some crucified loser and this is, this is what that is. So Rome had lost its kind of fortitude and, and its kind of fortress mentality. And that's why we lost it. So Augustine is having to offer a perspective, uh, the, the right perspective of looking at human history. And in the city of God, he kind of presents to us two parallel cities. City of humanity and city of God. And he says, you know, we actually, and what he says is that we are actually living always in these two cities simultaneously. We're living in the city of humanity, humankind, and we're living in the city of God. But, and so it's going to create some confusion for, for all of us, especially if you happen to believe in the city of God. Augustine says, you know, if you don't believe in the city of God, life, as, you, as far as you know, is pretty simple. You just live in that one city, city of humanity, and there you, there you go, voila, that's all there is to life. But if you happen to believe in the city of God, then it makes life both more exhilarating as well as exasperating. More fulfilling as well as frustrating because you are thinking about that other city that is yet to come. How, and, and so often Augustine says, that city of God is more invisible than visible. Whereas city of humankind is right in front of us. And so it's going to cause us to believe and hope and patiently wait rather than see it in front of us all the time. This is what he says. He says the earthly city was created by self-love. Ultimately, the city of human, humankind is about self, me, myself, and I. And it says self-love reaching the point, ultimate point of contempt of God. On the other hand, the heavenly city was founded and created by the love of God, carried ultimately to the contempt even of self. That you love God so much and you love your neighbor so much that you're willing to say, you know what, I'm actually going to uh, hate myself in a way. So this is how he kind of presents that. And I, I, I think that text has really influenced my thinking a lot about the city. Because I think as Christians, uh, we have to think about the city. I think Nashville is a big city, but not as big as like Mexico City or Tokyo or New York or Los Angeles. But it's kind of emerging as sort of a hip city, hip, like it city, hipster city. And, and, and I kind of get that. And so, as, but what are some of the characteristics of cities? as opposed to suburbs, right? So after my son graduated from middle school, we decided to take, so I used to live in New York for two years right after college, uh, worked there before going to the seminary. And so I said, you know, I want you to now, I wanna, I wanna take you to New York City, to Manhattan, where I used to live, and I'll take you to some of my favorite diners and some of the places. So he was born in Boston, came here when he was about a year and a half, and then has lived in, in, in the South all his life. And my brother was visiting, and he noticed something. He's like, hey, man, your son speaks with a southern drawl. And I was, I, 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 I'll be honest with you, I was kind of horrible. Like, what? No, he doesn't speak with a southern drawl. <laughs> and I asked my brother, do I? He's like, no, you don't, but your son does. I was like, oh, no. I, I, my wife and I love Nashville now, but, like, to hear that my son speaks with a southern drawl, I was like, huh. And then we go to New York and Manhattan. We're walking around, and this is what he said. I'm going to just give it to you unfiltered. He says, you know what, Dad? Here, white people, nobody speaks English. <laughs> They're speaking, you know, Russian, Spanish, and multiple languages. And most white people speak other languages than English. And I said, yeah, that's right. 
When you come to cities, you're going to have encounter more diversity. People aren't going to eat the same thing. They're, going to believe, they're not going to believe the same God. And that's precisely why people like my wife and some other moms and dads are afraid of sending their kids. And I completely understand that, right? So then, but what, 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 what is so special about cities? What is so good about cities? Okay, better food maybe, better places to sightsee and so on. But there is something that is actually really connected with the God of Israel and, uh, and the Christian God and why I think we should love the city. And I want to take you to a text that you probably have not read for a while and these six cities that you haven't heard in quite a while, but that will t- teach us something about the heart of God. Joshua chapter 20 is not part of your daily reading Bible text, I know, as is not mine. These six cities show up. The cities are Joshua chapter 20, verses 1 through 9. God says, tell the Israelites to designate these cities. And the cities are Kadesh, Shechem, Kiriath Arba, Bezer, Ramoth, and Golan. You know what these cities are for? Can anyone guess what these cities are for? Wow, that was really quick. I was about to say, if someone guessed it right, I'll give you a $10 Starbucks <laughs> gift card. But you beat me to the punch. You're right. Cities of refuge. What are cities of refuge? Does anyone know? Do you know? Yeah, tell, tell us. Where that if they accidentally killed someone, they could go into the city and not have a revenge killing. Yes. Think about that. That sounds kind of ancient and medieval, right? I mean, let's say it's an accidental killing, right? So it's not an intentional premeditated murder, but manslaughter, right? As it says, then, then you can actually run to these six cities, Kadesh, Shechem, Kirith, Arba, Bezer, Ramoth, and Golan, and you can hang out there because the Avengers, Avengers like, you know, Marvel series, they cannot come get you. This is divinely designated places of safety, right? But on the other hand, if you're a parent, would you just tell your children, hey, go hang out in those six cities because it's kind of be cool because there are a lot of people incidentally killed? Like, no, you're like, stay away from there. <laughs> see, God, see, God is far more diverse than you think God is. God cares about every one of us. And you know, it sounds it's such a commonsensical truism, I get it. But so often we are kind of habituated and culturated into thinking that God cares about people who look like me who worship like me, eat like me, share the same zip codes, and that's about it. No, we need to actually kind of broaden that thinking. And so God of the city, our sermon indicates, is to design, is designed to really kind of expand our horizons to see that God is not just the God of the suburbs, that God is not just the God of Israel, because as Israel will learn in some ways kind of painfully, that God is the God of the Gentiles too. So it opens up our vista of thinking about God in this really powerful way. So, and there are a couple other texts that I want to introduce before we get to Isaiah. For example, uh, on the one hand, there's these cities of refuge that are really positive appropriations of urban centers. But at the same time, there are these kind of very, very primordial cities. They're called cities. Genesis 4, it speaks about Cain, the murderer of his own brother, the committer, you know, the one who commits fratricide. And Cain actually, after he leaves the sight of God, he builds a city and he names it after whom? You know, it names it after his own son, Enoch. And when you think about, and, and as Augustine said, the city of humankind, the number one identifying mark of the city of mankind or humankind is that it is designed by and fueled by self-love. 
It is ultimately about me. It is ultimately about me and mine and my tribe. In Genesis 11:4, as the Tower of Babel is being you know, erected, well, what do they say? Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. This is in flat contradiction to divine command. What did God say? God said to, to, to the people then, go and be scattered and multiply so that you can populate different parts of the world. And here, they say, no, no, we're going to actually congregate among ourselves and build a city, and we're going to reach a tower that will reach the heavens. And God, in those instances, comes in gracious judgment of them. Coming to the New Testament, we have Hebrews chapter 13, and we'll revisit this text toward the end of our sermon. But here it says, For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. So it is kind of, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of God in Jesus Christ, one thing you have to think through is that, you know, not all there is to life here and now is all there is to life. That there is the world to come, the city that is yet to come, but city that is already broken into our way of thinking and being and living that we need to actually take very seriously. If the city of God, the eternal city of God is going to be populated by all peoples, all peoples, different tribes and different tongues and different nations, and if that is the case, if that's the, what theologians would call eschatological reality, then it does behoove us to think about matching our life here and now to be more and more like that. Meaning that that is the eternal ideal, right? Whether you think about it in a Christian way or Platonic way, you have to, there's an ideal, there's a goal that we're headed there. That means our present reality, if it doesn't, since it doesn't match that, we all have to do our best to make it that it matches more of that ideal than our present reality. And that's called sanctification, that is called discipleship, that is called following Jesus, that is called being in this body politic called the church. So in today's text, and in Isaiah chapters 25 and 26, I'd like to work with you to see how the language of the city shows up and how it is described and what God's plan was with these cities then, and as a result, what God might be up to with us today, here in 2019. So to get us there, I'd like to share three quick points. Uh, three points. Uh, first point is about city of human hubris. Second point is city of divine humility. Third point will be a city life in between. City of human hubris, mean human, hubris meaning arrogance. Uh, city of divine humility and city life in between. So let's think about this. So here, what we have is uh, the first point, the city of human hubris. That all the way back to Cain's urban project, building a city and naming after his own, to where we are right now in Isaiah's vision. So um, in, in Isaiah, what we have is this kind of wonderful uh, picture of God's plan. But as wonderful as it is, and the language of Isaiah, that the Hebrew expressions are really kind of, in, in, in many ways, uh, really... Some have said that Isaiah is the Jewish counterpart to English Shakespeare, right? Though he's kind of written in, in such kind of beautiful and lofty and sublime expressions. That, so not only was his kind of superior in some ways in terms of his style and eloquence, but the, the ranging vista, what Isaiah is talking about, as if you have read the book of Isaiah, what is he talking about? It's a, it's a prophecy, and prophecy by definition means he's talking about events that are yet to come, yet to be fulfilled. Right? So it is what Isaiah is doing is that Isaiah is giving a, a stout warning and gracious warning coming from God saying that, you know what, get your life together. 
Because God is really, God loves you. God will never forsake you nor leave you. But God is also, because God loves you so much, God is issuing some real loving warning. If you continue to do like this, then it's not going to be. And, you know, we all go to, um, I, I'm, I'm 52 now, so I, um, I don't know, but I never did like going to the doctor's office, you know. But, but as I'm in my middle, kind of middle decade, I don't know, fifth, fifth decade, like I'm dreading it even more, right? So I had to get like really urged to go. But my doctor happens to be a friend of mine. And he would tell me things like, Paul, I want you to, uh, your weight is here. I want you to go down here in the next six months. And here are some plans. And your blood pressure level is here. We want it to be down here. And, and so these are words that I don't, do I like to hear them? My cholesterol level is here. And you know what I mean? And he's like, well, you need to do these things. And he said to me, I'm telling you as your friend, as well as your doctor, that if you want to be around to see your son have kids and so on, you better control how much salt intake you have, sugar intake you have, blah, 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 right? And you, you get the picture. Now, are these words stern warnings? Yes, they're stern warnings. Do I need them? No, I don't need them, do I? Yes, I do need them. I, I actually absolutely need my doctor friend to tell me what I should be eating, how much I should be running or walking, blah, blah, blah. You get the picture. Think of it like that. Isaiah's warning for the people of Israel is God's loving, right? Loving, embracing words of encouragement and say, do this, you will live. But as we know from the history of Israel, they did not do. They lived, but not in the way that was truly human flourishing. And in the middle of all of that, God still says, I will bring you home. All right, so I think what we need to see is the history of Israel is a microcosm of human history. Because if we don't see it that way, then it's going to breathe within us a kind of unfortunate kind of repetition of anti-Semitism. Like, oh, the Jews are worse than us. No, 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 no. Actually, the life of Israel, the history of Israel is a microcosm of human history. Because what we see in the life of Israel is what we see within us. And so let's go to the first point, city of human hubris. See, in the book of Isaiah... The, the, the city that is portrayed as the kind of full of hubris is initially, is the Gentile city, right? It is the Babylon and all these cities that are actually trying to overtake and capture Israel. But at the same time, in, in a sort of ironic fashion, what we will see is that also Israel exercise its own hubris so that it will be judged Eventuating in the loss of national sovereignty and national pride and national independence and they become exiles. And so it'll, we will see how that plays itself out. But let's begin with the city of human hubris as located in the enemies of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, at his height of arrogance and preeminence of power, he exclaimed, look at this great city of Babylon by my own power, I have built this city, beautiful city, as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. And as some of you who know the book of Daniel can, can tell, as soon as he said that, guess what? He gets judged by God and he gets to live in the wilderness quite literally for quite a, quite a while. At the same time, I think, you know, so cities that are named after their own sons and daughters and so on, many prefer visiting cities for that purpose of marveling, as, as do I, human ingenuity, creativity, architectural, artistic, and financial power of getting things done, establishing institutions of human and humane values. And here in this city, right here in a text that we read, verse 5, he humbles those who dwell on high, 
He lays the lofty city low. He levels it to the ground and casts it down to the dust. Very stern and even scary words. God says, okay, I am actually, those who are so up on themselves and cities that are saying, you know, we are invincible. We're basically, you know, above reproach and no one can invade us. God says, not so fast. I am the Lord who is above all empires. Some of you may remember this movie. It's an older movie. Uh, it's a Chariots of Fire, right? Eric Little. And, and I love that movie. It was one of my favorite movies of, of all time. I've seen it 23 times in my life. And, and, and it's just, you know, the, the scene where Eric Little is preaching in the Scottish church in Paris during the Olympics. And, and he's speaking of, and he's reading from the prophecy, prophecy of Isaiah, right? And, you know, it says, and they're all running and running and they're doing the steeplechase and they're falling onto the puddle and grimacing. And, and their text that is read is that God is going to lay low all those empires. You know, every prince and princess, every king and queen who pretends oneself to be so powerful and mighty, they're going to be brought low. Cities and empires of human hubris will be brought low. That's not a comforting word, to be honest. And you know what? As we're going through the series on Isaiah, if you don't like uncomfortable words, you might want to skip the series for a while. Because Isaiah is going to be actually full of... Think about all the prophets, major and minor prophets. Do they say nice things to people to make them feel better? No. To be a prophet means that you're going to have to step into the middle and say, hang on, this is not good. You need to actually hear what's going on and really kind of get it right with God. These words are never intended to be warm and fuzzy and make you feel better. Same thing as my doctor's words about, Paul, you better get your you know, physical health in shape because otherwise you may not be around that long. These are never comforting words, and yet these are true words that are designed to bring us a, a sort of a pattern of transformation as God designs it. So city of human hubris. But here's another thing that I want us to remember. God does not forsake the city of human hubris, although he judges it, but we shall see that through God's saving actions in Jesus Christ that we see that cities are not left out or deserted. Because at the end of the book of Revelation, I want to read something really, really marvelous. It says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need a sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light. And then it says, on no day will the city's gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. And then it says in chapter 22, the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down, right down the middle of the great streets of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. All the nations, mighty or misery, have experienced traumas of various types. And it says in Revelation 22 that the, the tree of life, the leaves of the tree of life for the healing of the nations. If you think about different countries, right? Countries that are not around anymore. I mean, they've been erased from human memory, right? Think about various genocides in our history, right? Think about, and so there are nations that have experienced traumas. And it says in the book of Revelation that when everything is settled and said and done, what God is going to do is wipe away the tears from all of our eyes and erase those memories that have haunted us individually, societally, collectively, as well as nationally, as well as globally. Leads me to my second point, city of divine humility. This is going to require a little bit more thinking, so stay with me. 
Because the city of divine humility, God's plans do not take place right away. Think about your life. There are things in your life that you wish had taken place, right? Or taken place sooner, or taken place later, or not at all, right? My plans, have they always worked out? No, if, I, my, if, my, if my plan worked out, I would be living in New York probably, uh, or in the Northeast. I, would, I probably wouldn't be a divinity school professor. <laughs> if my plan would work out, I'll probably be doing something else, probably law or iBanking or something. My plans did not work out. And yet, as a 52-year-old man, as I look back in my half century, can I honestly say that my plans would have been better than God's plans? Absolutely not. God's plans are far better than my plans. But then the city of divine humility looks like this. We as followers of God and lovers of God and beloved of God, we see our life though through glass, through glass darkly. Therefore, our perspectives are not always trustworthy, if you know what I mean. I only know partly. And I'm often surprised by what life actually turns out to be like. But here, the city of divine humility is like this. The city of God, namely, namely Jerusalem, guess what? Captured. Its denizens and citizens are led away in exile and, and captivity. Why does God suffer that kind of humiliation? See, we often think like that, if you know what I mean. If, you, if a country is doing well, we think that their gods must be strong. And people still think like that. Let me give you an example. In 2002... Um, I, I was uh, teaching and learning a lot in Ethiopia at this uh, uh, theological college in Addis Ababa. And, and, and as a result, I, I got to really have this uh, real love for, you know, injiri. It's an in, uh, Ethiopian food. And it's, if you like in Ethiopian food, uh, go down to Nolansville, and there's some, Nolansville Road, and there's some wonderful Ethiopian places. So we're, and the, the, the habit, the, the cultural habit is that you take away, uh, you tear off certain, it's like a big, it's about this size. Don't worry, I'm not going to eat or drink any of this here. It's like... <laughs> Over here, you tear off certain bits and then you put in some spicy chickpeas. And so sometimes you can put in like goat meat or chicken meat and, and you eat that. So, and we saw a friend, so my colleague and I were tea, uh, eating together and we saw a guy, um, a young uh, youngster who was probably in his 14th or 15th, so he was a mid-teenager. And he was picking food from the, the heap of uh, garbage, food that were uh, disposed. And my friend Sean and I wanted to invite him to our table and say, hey, why don't you come join us? So he comes over, and we were hoping that he would wash his hands, but he didn't wash his hands. So he comes in, sits down, and then eats with us. And then I will never forget what he said. He said, you know, after hearing that we are from America and teaching theology and learning together with them, he said, your God is powerful. My God is not powerful. And I said, huh, what do you mean? And this is actually, this is a very, like, actually a lot, a lot of people think like this. He says, your God, from, your American God is powerful because America is so powerful. My God in Ethiopia, look at us, we're not that, you know, so our God is not powerful. And I tried to explain to him, you know, if you understand, uh, you know, the, the city of divine humility, whatever, it's like none of it worked. And you know, a lot of people think like that. A lot of people judge by what's apparently in front of us, right? A nation that is doing really well, we must think that they must have done something right. And they, their gods must be on their side because we are a loser country. We don't even have our national independence. We are living in captivity. Guess who was doing that? Israel. That means there is a city of divine humility. 
Divine humiliation. God allowed Israel to go into captivity. Why? I don't know why. Really. But, you know, we, it's not just because of recompense, because quid pro quo, because there are plenty of other nations that were doing some horrific things, and yet they were going unscathed. So we have to ask this question. God, is justice that we see right here and now, is there all there is to justice? Right? So if you read through the book of Isaiah in chapter 11, there's a, there's a really powerful indictment of the injustice that were going on in the world at the time. And one of the most powerful commentaries I've read is from John Calvin. Calvin's commentary on Isaiah, he says, you know what? You know, because the text says, you know, the, 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 civil, uh, the magistrates should be protecting the poor, right, and upholding the justice. But what do civil magistrates do, Calvin says? Calvin says, civil magistrates actually punish the poor, and oppress the poor, and then they give further leniency and protection for the rich. This is actually prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah was indicting the people of Israel for the kind of injustice that was happening, saying that we better get it right with God because God is the God of justice and mercy. Therefore, we need to have this. And yet, because of God's plan to get Israel right with God, God allows that period of uh, humiliation. The city of glory and grace becomes a city of divine Humility. City of God is in exile. Humiliated, lost his sovereignty, national pride. In some ways, the city of God and purposes of God seem to lie in rubble and ruins and its desires unfulfilled and thwarted. How do we know it? Because if we want to see God's humility, God's true humility and divine condescension, we see no better, nowhere better than in the Eucharistic element. The body of Christ broken, the blood of Christ shed for us. That leads me to my final point. City life in between. Or why we actually need to be saved from ourselves. I don't know about you, but I get, in, I, get, I get in the middle. I get in the way of me and God. Life is in many ways full of disappointing circumstances, right? Let's be honest. No? He's like, no. I you can ask my son. I have a 14-year-old son who's a, a first-year student, freshman in high school. He got paid for the first time for work. He worked for two weeks, the last two weeks, and he got paid $125 for the work he did each week, so $250. And now that we can have, uh, what do you call, mobile banking, I, I, I said, let's frame your check, and I'll give you the cash for it. And I asked him, like, I was really excited. Mom and I, you know, Mickey and I were really excited that he got to work. And, and I asked him, like, did you like your work? He goes, no. <laughs> I said, okay, well, tell me. And, and he goes, he said, you know, he thought this, this job was going to be more fun, more fulfilling. So obviously he was disappointed. And I said, what? So we, we don't want to go down the path of, you know, desolation and disappointment so quickly. I said, you know, tell us about what you liked about your job. And he goes, yes, what I liked about the job is that I don't ever want to work a job like that. <laughs> That's what I learned. I said, okay, that's great. What was the worst part about that job? He goes, well, I don't ever want to work a job like that. That's the best and the worst part. I said, okay. So I was driving him somewhere, and I said, you know, because when I was in college, I was a DJ, and then I learned a lot from, like, playing songs. and like So I love playing songs and getting, like, linking them with life lessons. So I said, son, let me play a song. And, you know, 99% of the time, I play songs, and my son Christian hates them. He was like, oh, it's stupid, blah, blah, blah. And he plays his songs for me, and do I return the favor? Oh, it's no, I was like, oh, yeah, it's pretty good, you know. <laughs> I don't really like them that much, but, you know. It's, I, I said, you know, allow me to play a song. Then I said, I think this would be good for you. And I said, I said, this is a song. It's an old song. 
And I asked him, have you ever heard of Beach Boys? He's like, he goes, yes. Are you going to play a song? By the yeah, I'm going to play a song. Do you know this song called Sloop John B? Does anyone know the song Sloop John B? Oh, yes. All right. It's one of my favorite. You know what? That's a, if you haven't listened to it, you should listen to it. It's, it's a song about, song about unfulfilled dream, like disappointing circumstances, right? He goes on sailing with his uncle and, you know, gets in the boat and goes around and gets, in, gets drunk, gets in trouble with the constable. And then toward the end of the song, it says, this is the worst trip I've ever been on, right? And I played a song for him. He's like, you know what? This, this guy, and, and it's really, to me, is one of the most fabulous songs that show us our disappointments with what we thought was going to be much more fulfilling than it actually turned out to be. I said to my son, son, you thought that by working this job, you'll have a lot of fun, right? He goes, yeah. And I said, son, it's not just for manual labor that you're going to have unfulfilled aspirations and ambitions. Our labor here and now are designed to give us some sense of fulfillment, but also leave us longing for more. Because we're designed for more. And you know what? People say, I can't wait until I get to retire. And people retire, what do they do? I want to do something. You know, why did I retire in the first? So we, there is something, and, and I told them, there is, there, God has created us with this cross-shaped vacuum in our hearts that only the love of God can fill it. No job. He wants to be like a general manager for an MLB team. I said, yeah, even if you become the general manager of an MLB team, unless your team wins, you know, the, the World Series every year, you're going to have job insecurity. So, as, and I, I told Christian, look, as you're following Jesus, we have to actually say to ourselves that following Jesus, that goal in and of itself, ought to trump and transcend all other dreams and ambitions. Because as we live in between these two cities and in both these cities, we are going to have disappointing circumstances. The world events may surprise us and sadden us. Our, my, my life journey itself, I will get in the way of my, my pursuit of God. Therefore, we get in trouble. The, the, the world will trouble us. But at the same time, the best message for me and for you, my son, I said, was that Christ has overcome the world. And, and Jesus said before that, what did he say? In this world, you will have what? Troubles. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. So we live in that tensional reality. City life in between means exactly that. That we are headed toward the city of God, and this is what it says. Then what do we do? Well, let me give you a quick point. We have, many of us enjoyed, at least in the West, Christian privilege. But now we're in the phase of Christian fragility. What we need to go is not privilege, no fragility, but Christian hospitality. Let me read Hebrews chapter 13 for us. Not the whole chapter, don't worry. So it says, as also Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make, his, make the people holy through his own blood, let us then go to him outside the city gate, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Beautiful words. That means we embrace that hospitality. The writer of Hebrews in the earlier part of the chapter 13 says, you know what? Do not neglect to entertain hospitality, entertain strangers with hospitality because you may be, what? You may be entertaining angels unaware. Harkening back to the Jewish memory of Abraham extending hospitality to the divine visitors. So you know what, friends? From day one till now, 
How do we embody the gospel? Is exactly that, embodying the hospitality, the radical generosity and hospitality of God. God who did not say no to the act of humiliation, act of condescension, coming to be where we are and dying a death that we don't ever wish to die as an executed criminal of the Roman Empire. That's who we worship. That's whose body we eat of. That's whose blood we drink from. And therefore, we are sustained to life. Let us live in that, in that city already but not yet, waiting for and glorying in the Savior who is our Lord and our best friend and our biggest, biggest advocate. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you. Thank you for the ministry of Christ Pres Cool Springs. Thank you for that ministry here that reaches out to the people here in Williamson County to encounter the living God in Jesus Christ afresh without pretense and judgment. Pray, Lord, that you will continue to encourage all of us who gather in this space to call upon your name. Thank you that you are continually at work within us, giving us a new insight into true humility and depriving us more and more of our hubris, of self-declaration, of independence. Thank you for all of those reminders as we come forward to receive the elements. Now may you do that wonderful heart work within us so that we may be fed unto life eternal. We thank you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.